Thanks for tuning in to the Writers of Color Reading Series, a podcast presented by the Englert Theater and hosted by me, Chuy Rentería. Caroline Chung is a PhD candidate in English with a graduate certificate in Gender, Women's, and Sexuality Studies. She works at the intersections of women of color feminisms, theories of state violence, transformative justice, and prison abolitionism. She researches the ways myths of white supremacy and proximities to whiteness uphold the prison industrial complex. She believes that the creative and imaginative work of literature serves as revolutionary gestures, providing both experiences and frameworks for transformative justice and community accountability. Knowing that scholarship must be accessible and active and that critical theory elevates activism, Caroline prioritizes the collaboration between public scholarship and collective praxis in her work as an activist scholar. So dope. So awesome. I uh, Just to give also the folks a primer on, on our relationship, we got to know each other through uh, the Oberman Center, the Oberman Center for Advanced Studies. We're both on a committee, um, the Humanities for Public Good, um, trying to basically think of a, cook up a humanities lab for, for future graduate students addressing what we're calling like wicked problems in society. And it's been such a pleasure to get to get to get to know you and to work with you and to, you know, I, as soon as I think it was from the very first meeting, like we were, you know, just ping ponging ideas and I'm like, Oh, Caroline and I are, are like on the same wavelength. Well, we'll, we'll this will be cool. <laughs> like, yes. Agreed. I immediately that first meeting was like, I have to get to know Chewy better. We are like, like-minded and I love it and still learn so much from Chewy. So yeah. Yeah, same, same here, likewise. And before we get into to some of the stuff that you do currently, you've been here for five years, correct? Yeah, five years. It feels like an eternity. <laughs> <laughs> Especially with like the last year that we've had. Like, <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, so I grew up in a suburb of Rochester, New York, and pretty much spent my whole life there because I also went to undergrad at the University of Rochester. My parents are doctors, but both immigrated to the United States from different positions of financial instability. So definitely coming from this immigrant and multicultural family where my mom is Korean and my dad is Chinese uh, and growing up in a suburb, it was not a lot of visual affirmation of people who looked like you around you or in the media either. So definitely had that experience growing up that a lot of Asian Americans talk about. And at the same time, it's important to recognize that that's not every Asian American's experience. And, uh, but yeah, so then went to the University of Rochester, where I was not sure what I would major in or do. I knew I wanted to be a teacher, but also knew that wasn't necessarily the dreams that my parents had for me who wanted me to have more financial stability or a stable career. And, you know, we all knew teaching might, unfortunately, has been, you know, uh, underfunded and defunded in many ways. So, but then did eventually get somewhat pretty much radicalized in college. Thankfully, I'm so grateful <laughs> to all the people who brought me into this journey and into this, like, let me be a student of abolition and community organizers and activists. So it was really in college that I started 
learning and unlearning a lot. And then that's when my professors very much sat me down was like, you should be a teacher if that's what you want to do. And then I applied for graduate schools and the University of Iowa was one that gave me a good financial package. Didn't think of the geography or what that meant and came out here. And yeah, it's been very different in the Midwest, which we've talked about too, the way that Midwestern niceness or the, as one article, I think in the Little Village magazine put it, uh, the demure white supremacy of the Midwest is difficult and unique. Yeah, that's such an interesting, this idea of that like Midwestern niceness and and how that can be, you know, this this very veiled animosity towards immigrants or people of color is a very interesting, like, it's it's interesting to me to look at it because I I was born here in Iowa or I was raised in Iowa. And so I think a lot of that for me is for for better or worse, it's internalized, right? Like I, I don't have that experience of coming from someone else and, and and being having that be so jarring. So, and then you got to the, the University of Iowa for grad school, and part of that is is to teach, correct? So you've taught rhetoric, and currently you're teaching uh, interpretation of literature. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. What are some of the the challenges? You know, because I think a lot of people they did they know. I mean, that's like the stereotype that like grad students are just like so overburdened with stuff. But I'm I'm always the thing that I think about was is is that balance of trying to do all your own work and then also teaching on top of that. And so my question to you is like, what 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 is the challenges? And then we can get really specific. Like, what is the challenges of teaching right now in these like kind of socially distanced social reckoning of a time that we have? I love that you asked that question because the University of Iowa, it was so different than my undergrad institution. And the, I'm not going to say for worse or for better, but the professors here were also diff- so different than, and the classes here were so different than what I had at my undergrad. So just that was like a lot to get used to. And then, so really teaching for the first couple years was the reason I stayed. Like it really was the, because I was somewhat pushed into a PhD program. I was just thinking I would get a master's in education and teach K through 12 and do that path. And then was pushed more into PhD research and this idea of, you know, getting your work out there at the same time that I really mostly prioritized being a teacher. And when I came here and was instead taught to focus on my own research or my own classes and not the teaching aspect, it was very confusing and even concerning at times because it was in my teaching and with and my students that I was able to really, I guess, focus on the books that I thought we should read and the conversations about anti-racism or anti-oppression or even just revolutionary politics. That's all things that I could learn from my students in um, and talk about with students in my classes that I taught. And so it was really because of that opportunity to have a little bit more freedom, which I'm very thankful that our department gives us that freedom to run our classrooms in those ways and have our own themes and topics on display. But it really was that opportunity and that, you know, flexibility that made me able to get through all of the 
strenuous PhD work that I wasn't used to that I didn't at first necessarily see the value in because a lot of it seemed like formalities or seemed like these weird gatekeeping aspects of and weird um, academic language that you were, you know, so all these things that I was somewhat taught in my undergrad institution to push back against. But then here, like you have to play the game to an extent in any PhD program. So yeah, the balance is really important to me because I don't think I would stay in a PhD program if I couldn't also teach. Uh, but at, then as, at the same time, the amount of work you have to complete for your PhD and the amount of work you have to do for teaching for your teaching load is definitely all adds up to be so overwhelming and affects my mental health, my coworkers and, you know, uh, cohorts, mental health. We all talk about it all the time. And this is definitely a shared experience among grad students in any field. Definitely starting to question that grind culture that is in grad school that is enforced on grad students and instead make room for the power of rest and what it means to be able to rest in academia is really important too. So yeah, and and we've we've talked about that in in previous ep- episodes. This uh, the concept of of you know self care as a radical act, and yeah. especially, especially for like BIPOC folk, where it's like this this kind of obsession with productivity that's placed upon us, and and to to prove our worth can be used against us in a way, and and it's uh, it's such a tricky riddle to solve because you, there's something too that you said where it's um the game right like that's the game like you have to you have to go through the paces i think a lot of us struggle with this idea of how much am i pushing against these norms and how much am i whether i like it or not perpetuating it right and i i think that is especially for people of color that becomes even even a more kind of stark inner struggle that i see a lot in us So true. That's the struggle and the question, definitely, because universities, the violence, especially the the racist violence of universities and, you know, their land grab institutions historically that were built by enslaved people. They continue like today to exploit the labor of caged people in prisons for, you know, food and dormitories or furniture and classrooms and so much more. And so there really is just a question, like you said, we are part of this institution when we're here. Like, so that comes with what are we just automatically complicit in when we are part of this university? And then what can we do and what noise can we make while being part of it? And the there's um, so many university abolitionists specifically who talk about the need to weaken the university or weaken the institution that you're a part of as you are moving through it, as you are surviving it, or as you are trying to play the game, but also change the game, abolish the game, whatever it is, is, you know, what kind of actions can we do to weaken the institution as we're also a part of it? And it becomes such a, you're right, such a difficult and personal question when you're marginalized. Yeah. I'm always trying to push push against these institutions and change these institutions. And I'm really, really cognizant of these institutions like changing me or like maybe maybe a better way to say it, like exhausting me, right? Like I'm like, I, I fought and I fought and I fought. And and after 20 years, I can, I can see like, I'm just, I'm tired. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, it, it, and that's such a like, it's such a 
scary thought to think about. Chewy, that's so real. That's I was thinking about that too, because that's how they get us, you know, they train us so well to become fully complicit or forget what our values and principles were. And it happens so quickly and sneaks into our subconscious. I can I see it happen to so many of my mentors and people around me. And I know I'm not better than them. It just really speaks to the environment and to the the way that especially when you have to play the game to survive, the politics of the game sneak into you and you just start, you know, believing in all of that. So yeah, I'm scared of that all the time of we're constantly being torn apart or divided and conquered <laughs> all those tactics. Right. And and it's 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 on multiple fronts, right? Like you have this kind of there's like these really big systemic kind of uh, insidious things that are, are it's like really hard to parse out because you have to get super you know it's like so nuanced and then you have just like very overt racism or white supremacy or like think you think of, of, of this past summer and the like swastikas that were painted uh, at city park which was just that that was the route I took on my breaks from Hancher. I would walk City Park and, you know, like I could have walked across these like swastikas like three three minutes from my my work, right? So it's like it's and I think that that can contribute to that load, right? Like you you're like you you're dealing with this like overt just like, you know, how you can't get any more overt than like a swastika by your workplace, right? But then also these kind of like institutional processes and systems that like, you can't, I mean, we can articulate it, but like, it takes more work to get people to really understand how people are being oppressed by these systems too. You're going to be doing a, a reading here. But before we do that, if you have anything that you you want to highlight or shout out or just think that you know the listener at home should check out and 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 pay attention to we'd we'd love to hear what that is I definitely want to shout out so many things um, but I'm not sure I guess when this will be out but I'm sure it'll still be relevant but just coming off of the Atlanta shootings I mean there are many places that people can go to support but to the I've been um, donating to our Red Canary um, as an organization and group, and then also the Butterfly Migrant Project, which uh, helps support migrant sex workers. Both of those are great. Kai Chang-Thong, who is an abolitionist and uh, is trans as well, they've put together a fundraiser for people, specifically for Butterfly Network, um, to donate to. So those two, and then also uh, just for our conversation about universities and everything. The Abolitionist Teaching Network is a great resource for anyone who is interested in thinking about teaching and what it means to weaken the university as you're a part of it. They have panels, resource guides, uh, so many things that you can check out. called Desiring Between Times, and it's a poem. I desire to be unraveled, 
to stare into my bones and feel the workings of my own soul as it remembers its pain in spaces of isolation and renews its strength in positions of collectivity. I desire to collapse language, to expose the state myths that in the name of what is white have etched wounds into communities, destroying homes, that have whipped scars into bodies, disappearing families. I desire to meet the land, to be held by its beauty and awe of its brutality and touched by its fragility, as it teaches me that like water, we might cry as we cleanse, like fire, we might burn as we give, like earth, we should ground as we build, and like air, we should breathe as we move. Like ancestors, the land is whispering for a revolution, waiting for a reckoning, willing for our healing. I desire to travel time, to sing with ghosts and dance with the future, to rejoice in the impossible that is our tender, brutal survival and our radical, beautiful world making. Thanks again to Caroline Chung for that thought-provoking and really like of-the-moment conversation. I, I enjoy talking to you off the record, and so having it on the record is, is another um, joy. And before we get to the, the, this week's community prompt, I just wanted to give a shout-out to somebody who, who reached out to us. Uh, so we had uh, David Calabrese, who sent a message to us after Kartika Boudoir's uh, episode and prompt about how has the land changed you and how have you changed the land and kind of that whole question. And he sent this beautiful uh, video of of butterflies that he saw um, on the Walnut Creek Trail that he walked in Clive, Iowa. And you can see, and I, I think that it's it's one of those things that you should see it for yourself. So you can check out um, David's Instagram account, uh, Davy.Charles, and and see for yourself. And it really did make me think about you know the 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 flora and the fauna around me, right? So thanks again to David. Now for this week's community prompt, uh, something that Carolyn and I on on reviewing this episode, it really made me think about, you know just how much that we're all burdened with, right? And and Caroline being a, a grad student and having all of these things, you know, extra that we're all doing. And, and of course, we, we talk about self-care. And there's that Audre Lorde quote um, that I alluded to, and I, and I pulled it up here just to get it exact. Caring for myself is not self-indulgence. It is self-preservation. And that is an act of political warfare, and I think that's a you know beautiful uh, a way to look at it, and and it's a way that's very necessary in these times. So the prompt for this week could be, what are some ways that you're caring for yourself? Um, if you were to recommend some acts for Caroline, for myself, for all these other people that you know we're doing so much, um, could you recommend some acts of self care for this moment? Because I think that's really important. Like, can you recommend some acts of self care for this moment in 2021? Uh, we hope to hear whatever you got. Again, you can record, you can write, you can send some videos of some things that bubbles up 
you know, like how David did, and, and we'll be more than happy to, to share them and shout them out and see what you got. You can send those to uh, podcast at englert.org. Support for this podcast comes from Friends of the Englert. To learn more, visit englert.org slash friends. Ongoing support provided by the National Endowment for the Arts and the Iowa Arts Council, a division of the Iowa Department of Cultural Affairs and by the United States Regional Arts Resilience Fund. Phase One is an initiative of Arts Midwest and its peers United States Regional Arts and Organizations, made possible by the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation.